Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is sponsored in part by Boyd Group International's 25th Annual International Aviation Forecast Summit this August in Cincinnati. The only aviation forecast event. Register to attend at a reduced rate with a special promo code available only at airlinesconfidential.com. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is also available at airlinesconfidential.com. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net. He once climbed into an overhead bin and testified to Congress that luggage was, quote, not essential for going on vacation. All to defend carry-on bag fees. Yeah, he's Ben Baldanza, the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, I think I said wasn't essential for all travel. Uh, I'm not sure I said vacations, but we'll see. Read read, read the fine print, right? (laughs) That's right. Well, you know, in this coronavirus age, when we're all at stay-at-home orders and things, our schedules have all changed a bit. And so while he tried something, he was unsuccessful in getting NPR to change the name of their very long-running successful program to here and maybe a little bit later. (laughs) It's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here and now transportation analyst. Pushing back from the gate, this is... Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we've got some of the most interesting numbers I've seen since we first learned the word coronavirus. And we'll talk about one airline labor practice that you might have thought was a relic of the Pan Am days. I use that example for those of you who aren't old enough to have lived through that, but saw the Pan Am TV series a few years ago. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, usually we come on here and discuss topics that are already in the news. We'll cite something we've read and then we'll approach it from a new angle. But often it's something someone else has already noticed, at least. But today it's a story you'll hear first and only on Airlines Confidential. Is that convincing? Yeah. Well, okay. actually, I gave out one or two of these numbers on the radio yesterday, but now we have a chance to go through them all. And they're fascinating. So what is it I'm so excited about? Well, everyone's trying to get a handle on airline activity compared to where it was before the crisis. Uh, you You could do it on a global or national level easily enough in terms of what percentage of flights are operating now compared to the past. But what I've been wondering and I've been frustrated in terms of getting useful information is what the different U.S. airlines are doing compared to one another. In other words, what percentage of all the flights United sells are actually operating compared to all the flights JetBlue sells and all the flights Delta and Spirit and all the rest of them sell. The thing that makes it so hard is that it's easy enough if you have access to schedule data to see what each marketing airline has done to its schedules in terms of removing flights from those schedules. The problem is that whereas in normal times, that might be a useful way to analyze things these days, well, These are not normal times, and different airlines are handling cancellations in importantly different ways that make schedule data less useful than usual. Some airlines are removing flights from schedules further in advance, whereas others are canceling more flights at the last minute so that they're still scheduled, even though the impact is the same, no flight. So you might think, okay, fine, let's see instead what actually operated compared to what was scheduled. Okay, The problem with that is that flights are operated for airlines by different airlines. And I'm talking especially about regional airlines in the U.S., which operate a massive percentage of all flights. And when you look at operational statistics, what you'll see is that a certain number of SkyWest or Republic flights canceled. 
But SkyWest and Republic just fly or cancel whatever American, Delta, and United tell them to fly or cancel. And, and so it's hard to match everything back up and figure out what Delta is really canceling. And then the issue is that not many data suppliers have both kinds of data to sort of overlay it all. Well, I knew the data analytics firm Sirium owns Dio, which is, among other things, a flight schedules database. And I know Sirium also owns flight stats, which tracks operations. So I asked them if they could please, please, please help me overlay the schedule data and the operational data to figure out the percentage of flights operating for the 11 largest U.S. giant airlines by marketing airline, which is what we all really care about. Down So that's from the giant ones down to like Frontier and Allegiant would be the smallest among those 11. Well, after that, there's a big drop off before you get to Sun Country, for example. And they did it. And the results are, as I said, fascinating. This is very current information. It's flights operated for the seven days ending last Friday, May 15th. Now, first of all, I was interested to look at the percentage of flights still being operated in the U.S. compared to the world overall. I, I had a theory about that based on what I've been reading. But Ben, if I, I, I the, the, try not to cheat. Have you looked at this yet, U.S. compared to the world? No, I haven't looked okay. at it yet. Okay, so... Um, do you want to guess? Uh, U.S. just flights operating. This is for the most recent seven days available uh, as a percentage of flights operating a year earlier. The U.S. compared to the world. How would you characterize that? Okay, so I would guess that the U.S. as a percentage of what it was operating last year is operating a little bit more than the rest of the world. Right. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the rest of the world relies on lots of transatlantic flights and their domestic markets aren't as large in the U.S. And like a country like India has just been on complete lockdown and there's no flights going on there. So I would guess that the U.S. maybe is operating, I don't know, maybe 30% of its flights and the rest of the world is maybe 25, something like that. Okay, yeah, you're, you're almost uh, almost spot on in terms of the differential. Uh, the, the, the actual numbers are slightly low. U.S. is operating 24 percent, uh, the world overall 20 percent. And, and the world oh, okay. and, the, and, and the world includes the U.S. So if you took out if you took out the U.S., that would be something like high teens. You're probably uh, exactly right. Uh, so 24 percent overall in the U.S., 20 percent in the rest of the world. But in terms of that U.S. average, that 24 percent belies a wild range in numbers between the different airlines. I knew there was variance just sort of based on what I had eyeballed with those less perfect numbers. But I had no idea how much that variance was. Ben, do you want to take any guesses? I'd love to guess before I click open and look. Yeah. At it, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So an airline that, that's that's operating way more than than other airlines. Well, my guess for that, and I must admit that I've seen some articles about this, is that it's probably Southwest. And the reason I say Southwest is they're principally a domestic airline anyway, so they have no long yeah. haul stuff to cancel. And their largest operations are in places that aren't the biggest hot spots yes. of this, like Texas, Florida, Arizona, things like that. So I'm guessing Southwest is flying the most. And you you kind of gave away the punchline, but I'm glad you did because I want to get to that sort of once we once we give the numbers sort of say, okay, what's going on here? What's driving it? Southwest among the major airlines, absolutely. They are operating as of those most recent seven days. 35% of what they were a year earlier. 35%. Wow, that's even more than I would have thought. But among all U.S. airlines down to, like I say, Allegiant would be the smallest one. Allegiant, 
53%. That's a huge spike from a week week earlier. They were operating 29%, which was already among the higher ones. They were up to 53%. Percent, and wow. and and I think it's for the same reason. Think about what Allegiant does, and and some American. And look, I, I was going to say Americans know this, but even some Americans might not really know Allegiant all that well because if you live in New York City, it, it's it's not a big airline for you. If you live in a lot of the big coastal cities, it's not. But if you live in a lot of interior markets, you know that is how you get a nonstop flight to go see Mickey Mouse or to go to Las Vegas is on Allegiant. You know, they are often the only nonstop flight. Uh, it's often cheap. They are a heartland airline. And so for the same reason, probably that, that you said about Southwest, just as true of Allegiant. So that's wild. They're up to 53% as of the most recent seven days of what they were doing a year earlier, uh, while uh, Southwest 35%. And I'll just go down the list here. Well, and also, uh, yeah. Seth, you might say about Allegiant, they run the industry's lowest utilization that's the term the industry used for the number of hours a day the airplanes are scheduled to fly. Yes. And so in a way, they almost are like a scheduled charter anyway. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, when they're only flying once or twice per week between two cities, that they might be able to keep more of that up than an airline that's flying multiple times a day, every day between two cities. Right. And, and I believe the CARES Act also probably impacts. So, so the CARES Act, for those that don't know, that's the big stimulus. But, it, you know, the airlines were required to basically keep serving all the cities that they served. And, it, and, and the airlines like Allegiant were making the case originally, those that fly less frequently, that, that it basically they were required to maintain a higher percentage of their operations uh, than than other airlines. But again, they were up, for, you know, they were down to a week earlier was 29% and from that to 53%. So, so yeah, no, it, it, for, for all those reasons, uh, and, and that was wild. I just didn't expect to see that number. The other end of the spectrum, there are two airlines in single digits. And interestingly, the one that's the lowest of all is an airline in terms of product that looks the most like Allegiant. And I'm talking about Spirit, right? So it's not just that ultra low cost carriers are flying a lot. Spirit was is down to 7%. The, that was the same as they've been doing a week earlier. JetBlue, an airline that looks very different from Spirit, but serves coastal markets, the biggest markets of all, you know, New York to Florida and, a lot, and transcontinental markets connecting the coasts, New York to LA, that kind of thing. Uh, some flying to the Caribbean, you know, international stuff, uh, South America, which you can't do right now, JetBlue, 8%. So those are the extremes. Allegiant at 53% and Southwest at 35%, the two by far the two highest, down to JetBlue at 8% and Spirit at just 7%. Everybody else somewhere in between. Now, among the big three airlines, American, United, and Delta, a little bit of a disparity. And, and, and I think the answer here goes to something that you said also, Ben. American, 28%. Whereas United and Delta kind of bunched together at 20% and 19%. So Americans significantly more. And the reason for that is among those big three U.S. airlines, one of them is significantly more domestic, significantly less global than the other two. And that one is, Ben? American. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's because when American merged with U.S. Airways, uh, U.S. Airways, although it was a global airline, I mean, it had flights to Europe, it was – 
far more domestic than the other U.S. global airlines. So when you put those two together, although Legacy American uh, was about as global as, as United or Delta, uh, the U.S. Airways part of it just sort of weighed it more. And yeah, a, a more domestically focused airline. Com- you know, I, yeah. I can think of both JetBlue and Spirit's low number in another way too, Seth. Uh-huh. One is Spirit is far and away the most leisure of all airlines, well, maybe other than Allegiant, right? In terms of, you know, if you think of the people traveling today are traveling for essential reasons, there's probably very little of that traffic that Spirit would naturally carry anyway. And they're also an airline that has been very quick to stop flying that isn't financially accretive for them. So it doesn't surprise me that they'd be low. And JetBlue, like you said, you know, with their biggest markets in New York and Boston and places that are real hotspots for this, doesn't surprise me at all where they are. Yeah, exactly. And let's see here as as the rebound starts at some point. I mean, there there are these signs that at least things are bouncing off their lows here. A lot of speculation. I think it's reasonable that that family visit travel might rebound first just because people miss their families because maybe they'll be more comfortable staying with family and and eating at home with family than you know staying in a hotel eating out those sorts of things if that's the case then then sure an airline like like spirit could do well with that kind of traffic uh, if corporate travel and global travel takes longer then then that's when you uh, you know, wouldn't want to be an airline like Delta as much, which has benefited, of course, so so greatly from its exposure to premium traffic and and global traffic and corporate traffic and all of that uh, in recent years. United more recently has 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 come back in those regards too. So uh, we'll see here as they get going. Just to complete the numbers, the others I, I didn't mention, sort of in the middle of the pack: Alaska, twenty five percent; Frontier, twenty three percent; and Hawaiian at uh, 17%. But I was uh, really excited to finally be able to do an apples to apples comparison. And I didn't realize I, 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 not surprised, like you said, we, we all knew that Southwest and Southwest because they don't have regional airlines flying for it. You could get actual numbers for them fairly easily. The problem is you didn't have the apples to apples because it was harder to get the Deltas, United and Americans by marketing airline in terms of what's uh, actually operating. And well, this is we the, the, these are this these are great data, Seth, and it's you know kudos to you for asking, and thank you, Sirium, for putting this together because I think this is really really interesting. I think our listeners are going to be fascinated by this. I would also say I'm a little surprised that the Hawaiian numbers as high as 17%. I mean, are people going to Hawaii on vacation? They certainly aren't. But maybe there's enough essential travel in and out of the islands that's driving that number higher than, say, a spirit, for example. Exactly. And and again, these are percentages of flights. So uh, flights, not seats, not available seat miles, for example. So if they're still operating more of the inter-island travel, for example, the inter-island flights, which is a big part of your business, then those would weigh more heavily heavily uh, in a number like that, whereas if you did it instead by seats or by uh, by ASMs, certainly by a- uh, by ASMs especially, I, I should say, uh, then then you know the number would look different uh, because obviously the, yeah, flying to the coast is going to weigh a lot more. ASMs, for anybody who doesn't know, available seat miles. Uh, so that's the number of seats times the distance that they fly where distance matters, whereas when you're just looking at seats or just looking at flights, the, the distance that those flights fly doesn't matter but no that's that's absolutely that makes true. sense yeah. yeah well you know let's take a question before the break joe of phoenix asks 
We've all heard about how the airlines squandered money over the last several years, making buybacks instead of saving for a rainy day. Do airlines make buybacks to also manage their liquidity so that they are not as attractive for a leveraged buyout? If they do, is that part of the reason buybacks are made? Now, before the half of our audience that doesn't care about share buybacks uh, falls asleep or, or, or tunes out the podcast. <laughs> Let's, Cause I think some people are fascinated by this and some people are not just, just in, in layman's terms, very quickly share buybacks. And, and, you know, I think more people than usual have, have read about this, but basically this is when a company has, you know, is generally when it's doing okay and it has a lot of cash and, and, um, it's taking care of other things that it wants to do with the cash. And it says, well, you know what? Our own stock, is a good deal if it thinks its share price is below where it should be, and then it just goes and buys back more of its own shares, which tends then to lift the price of those shares because it's it's supply and demand. It's it's taking shares out of the open marketplace, and, and then its investors are happy. And we've talked in the past about the the, the controversy about that, uh, but but for right now. So, so that's Joe's question. Um, now, Ben, you you talked about this in, in well, a month or two ago. How Spirit adopted a poison pill to to try to prevent a a takeover, and it's something companies in other industries have done too, uh, taken other kinds of steps to try to prevent being taken over at a time when, in the opinion of the company, the share price is just way below what it ought to be. But what about Joe's question here? Well, it's a great question, Joe. Thank you. Couple things here. First of all. I don't like this idea that, you know, he said, we've all heard our airlines have squandered money over the last years. And that word squandered has been used a lot. So I'm not at all complaining about Joe using it because he's right. That has been the narrative. Right. He's, but he's it's characterizing unfair, what's, yes, what's out but there. But it's an unfair narrative because if you look at if you look at the cash that airlines have spent and not kept on their balance sheets over the last number of years, an enormously large percentage, like over 90% of that cash has been spent on their employees, has been spent on plants, property, and equipment, meaning new airplanes, you know, fixing airports, things like that. And so the amount that airlines have spent on buying back shares is actually a very small percentage of the cash that they've not kept. Now that said, you can certainly say that any dollar spent buying back your own stock is a dollar you didn't have when the crisis hit. Right. And so I can understand why some people who are particularly don't like that activity because they think it artificially increases the earnings per share of a stock and maybe therefore increases its stock price as people are excited that it earned more per share when in fact all they've done is take shares out of the market. So I understand why people don't like that activity, but I don't think that that has much of a play in what airlines have done in terms of their cash position. Now, that said, a leverage buyout is an opportunity for financiers when they see a lot of cash in a company. So that's a reason companies don't just want to keep everything in cash. And Joe's right about that. But there aren't a lot of people interested in buying in the airline space right now, I think, uh, because there's just so much uncertainty around it. So I don't think that the buybacks are related to managing their cash for a leverage buyout. I think that's it's an interesting idea, but I don't think they're related. I think airlines manage a certain amount of cash, so they have plenty of cash 
for a rainy day, they weren't expecting this massive storm, right, necessarily, <laughs> but for a rainy day at least. And most of their money goes in investing back into the business, people, plants, power, and property, equipment, things like that. And then when they've had some extra cash, yes, they bought back some stock. They're not going to be doing that for a while because all the money they've taken from the CARES Act actually prohibits them to do that. Right. Plus, Every airline's keeping their cash right now. They're not going to be buying back stock with that. So it's an interesting uh, theory that Joe has. I don't think they're really linked, however. Yeah, good question, though. Re- re- very good question. question. Yeah. Uh, can't blame him for uh, for for wondering that. Uh, quickly, want to give an update about the International Aviation Forecast Summit, Ben. We, we talked for a while about it uh, up until a couple months ago, and then we stopped talking about it because – because who knows uh, <laughs> what the world's going to look like in August, right? But that could be a time when people are feeling okay, some people anyway, about traveling again, about going to a, a conference. And if, if you're going to go to one, this is really the one to go to. Uh, you know, Anybody who found the U.S. airline industry and the global industry in some ways boring in a good way in recent years <laughs> because things were going well. You go to a conference, well, things are things are things are okay again this year. Uh th- we're back to where it all matters and 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 people are going to be hanging on to every word of of reliable forecasts. And so again, not knowing for sure what the world's going to look like then. The, the conference is on as of now and and we are excited about being the official uh, podcast and and media partner of the conference and planning to record that week's podcast live in a session uh, at the summit. Take questions for the audience that uh, we'll we'll have on on the show here. But in view of what's happening and understanding, obviously that that uh, that budgets are strapped right now, they are offering a an extraordinarily low rate. And you can get it if you go to our website, airlinesconfidential.com. It's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you go, it's the International Aviation Forecast Summit. The Boyd Group International Aviation Forecast Summit, because you could also Google that. Go there and use code AC1550. Okay, so it's AC, like Airlines Confidential, AC1550 by June 12th to get that extra low rate. And wow, I, I sure hope that we can be there because it'll be, as I said, not only fun, but extraordinarily uh, interesting. I know interesting right now is kind of a euphemism. <laughs> a lot of things are not interesting in a good way, but uh, the, the belly of the beast is is a, a fascinating place. Well, imagine if airlines could just furlough whatever frontline workers they wanted instead of those with the lowest seniority. In some parts of the world, you don't have to imagine it because it's reality. Yeah, it's that plus fine or wine when Airlines Confidential returns. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, time for another question. Dan of Chicago writes, good day, Ben and Seth. What do you make of Qatar Airways reportedly laying off veteran flight attendants, those with 15 years or more on the job? So as the CEO says, quote, to keep the workforce young, unquote. Several friends of mine are corporate travel agents and have said they will avoid booking on 
that airline due to the treatment of their staff. And Ben, this is not the first time there have been allegations like that about that airline. It's not the only one in the world. Uh, you know, different countries have very different labor practices. We, uh, you mentioned in the in the intro the the Pan Am series and Pan Am the reality the airline. You know, those were. There was a time in the U.S. where if you were a flight attendant, you got a little older, you got married, th- that was the end of your career. Or if you, or if you got a little overweight, or, too. Yeah, that sure. used to be that used to be the rule too. Sure, sure, uh, and and you know, of course, that's all now largely in the past in in many parts of the world yeah (laughs) but but there are but there are still places whether it's what we're hearing here or or you know parts of east asia where yeah there are there are limits in terms of age and all the rest of it uh and we can think of a number of well-regarded airlines where you get on board and you don't seem to see very many uh you know senior flight attendants um so so yeah uh what about that and and the idea that people through how they make their purchasing decisions or corporate travel agents, which I, I, I assume what Dan means is that they have a lot of leverage here because they represent a lot of customers trying to steer business away from that. What what do you think? Well, I always think that voting with your feet is the way to do things. I mean, support whose business practices you like and avoid businesses with practices you don't like. And so I think pushing this idea to travel agents who can drive the revenues of an airline like this, that can be an effective way to maybe counter this kind of policy. You know, you could take a very naive view, I think, and say what the CEO meant by saying to keep the workforce young, he really meant to keep his costs in control, right? Because you have to give people raises every year. And if the workforce is younger in seniority, maybe that costs won't rise as much. I think that's a fairly naive way to think about what he meant by that. I think we all know what he probably really meant by that. And all I can say is, thank God that that's not policy in the U.S. or Western Europe or sort of most most places where, where they understand people's value and workers' value and the value of seniority in terms of understanding your job better and being safer and making fewer errors and things like that. In the meantime, I think what you can say is people who like that policy can go fly that airline. My guess is more people who understand the really poor human resource policy aspect of that will say there's lots of airlines I can pick to fly where that airline goes. And, and you raise a good point that airlines elsewhere that, that that don't do that, that when they have to furlough workers, start with the least senior, with the most junior workers, accept a lot of cost for, for doing that. And that's all negotiated through you know collective bargaining with airlines that are unionized and, and, and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, it, it would be uh, – a lot cheaper for them to get rid of the oldest workers than get rid of you. I mean, if you can ever get rid of a third of your workers from a cost standpoint, get rid of the most senior ones. So it's actually very costly. But like you say, something that that uh, you certainly have to root for from an employee standpoint that that loyalty and, and seniority uh, is 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 rewarded as opposed to being seen as a liability. That's right. And well, and also Seth, that's why also why airlines, when they need to downsize at times, have often used buyouts as a way to do it. Let Let me buy out so you agree to retire because I'll give you this incentive to do that. And they typically only offer that to, they may offer it to all flight attendants 
or all of a work group, for example, knowing that the more senior ones would be more interested in that just because of how long they've been working. Right. And if it works out for both the worker and the company, then, hey, great, uh, because That's exactly right. the most senior workers do cost more. And if they were thinking of retiring anyway, and, and this incentive, whatever it is, helps them do it, then then great. But they're not the first ones forced out. Uh, during a, a furlough or a layoff. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. That's when we listen to an actual customer complaint and then talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint, or I guess actually somebody else has a complaint. You're just going to read it. (laughs) That's right. This one is from Anthony of Fort Lauderdale. I hope it's not of uh, Anthony's cold-fired pizza. Probably not. (laughs) But it's Anthony of Fort Lauderdale (laughs) complaining about Southwest. Anthony writes, we upgraded our boarding passes for $40 to A, meaning the A boarding group, meaning the first boarding group, so we could sit together. Remember, Southwest doesn't have seat assignments, so if you board earlier, your chances of sitting together are greater. Keep in mind that our tickets were already $450 each, which is high for Fort Lauderdale to Rochester. Our original had me boarding in B class and my husband in C. Really? Then we board and some jerk who was late with a pre-boarding pass complained where we sat because we were in A group and did not have a pre-boarding pass. The airline allowed us on and called general boarding. The crew member basically sided with the jerk and had a terrible personality, never smiling once, made us feel like we did something wrong last time we fly Southwest. Wow. I didn't listen to anything you said because I was thinking about like chicken wings and pizza when you <laughs> I'm hungry right now. And so you might read that again. No, kidding. I, 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 I did pay some attention. Uh, okay. So, so Anthony and his husband, you know, I been and Southwest boarding is, is, is controversial. There are people who love it and, and the airline, you know, when it has at times thought about or done little trials of doing things a little bit differently, you know, uh, has talked about how a lot of its customers, its most loyal customers for decades, love it. Uh, and then there are people who don't. And I'll, I'll tell you my personal feeling. So again, you, you can, through your status or through uh, paying extra, you can board early, but nobody, of course, is assigned a seat. Nobody's guaranteed any seat. And there are times when you board at like a mid-continent hub, right? Or you know whether it's like Chicago Midway or maybe Baltimore, Washington, halfway up and down the East Coast, where you know there could be 40 or 50 people on board the flight and the best boarding priority of all uh, doesn't even give you close to your choice of, That's right. of seats. Um, and, and my feeling always is, you know, I don't want to board first. I want the best seat I can get. And I would be able to board last if I want, <laughs> you know, I would be able to like, like, you know, if, if I'm eating in the terminal or I'm yeah, I don't know, sitting on my laptop and I'm busy with something, I hate having to jump up so that I can get the seat I want. Again, I realize not everybody feels that way. Some people love what they do, but uh, love what Southwest does. That is, but what, what do you think here? Uh, they, they bought up, they had these and then, uh, you know, so it sounds like a question of attitude and also, 
the the policy itself. Who's who's right here? Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to side totally with the customer on this one. You know, gate agents have a hard job, right? They're dealing with people who some of whom are nervous about flying, some of whom feel very entitled, all kinds of things, right? But the fact is, these people paid to board early. They were allowed on the plane, and then somebody comes up after that point and says, I've got a pre-boarding pass, so I want their seat. I think I think that person is wrong. And the people who were allowed to board early and paid to board early so they could sit together have every right to say they shouldn't have felt like they did anything wrong. In fact, they ended up paying $490 to get from Fort Lauderdale to Rochester yeah. when they could have gotten to New York City for probably under $100. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. And, um, and so... I think this customer is totally right. The flight attendant, if they knew there were pre-boarders there, should have held the boarding for the pre-boarders. The pre-boarders should have shown up earlier. I think that person was a jerk and made a made a deal out of it. That person never should have made a deal out of it. They should have just been happy to get on when they got on. And I don't see anything that these customers did wrong. I think they have a legitimate beef complaining about this. And if they even if they say last time we fly Southwest, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But if it's true, I bet they're not going to pay forty dollars to board early again. Exactly right. You know that that's you have to you have to deliver value for what you're selling, and, and not have people out there feeling that way, whether or not they fly the airline again. And, and obviously, they're they're telling other people about it. Well. On final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.